Good morning. You may be seated and please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. We'll be concluding this particular chapter uh, in our study in Romans. Uh, so Romans chapter 4 verses 22 through 25 will be our primary text. Uh, so let me, let me read that for us and kind of give us a little bit of a picture of where we are heading this morning and then pray uh, and get to work. Uh, by the way, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders, and so it's really good to be with you all here in person. Good to be with you all who are joining us uh, online as well. Romans 4, verse 22 through 25. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So essentially there in verse 22 uh, and to the beginning of 24, Paul really summarizes what he's already been teaching us. And he, he does a lot of this. If it seems like Paul has been repeating himself, it's because he has been repeating himself. He has wanted to make sure and wanted to make clear the nature of the gospel, the nature and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as juxtaposed or rather as um, distinct from his uh, religious mindset of believers or, or, or readers and also from the non-Jewish people who were reading, those who didn't grow up in a context of faith per se like uh, the Jews, but in a more of a secular or modern way in the first century. And so he's speaking to both of them and saying Jesus is very different from what you believe that your life is meant to be about. But it's not just for those Jewish and non-Jewish readers. You notice that great language. He says that it's not just for their sake, but for our sake. And so Paul is making sure that they understand when he goes back to Abraham and speaks about this faith that was credited to him or counted to him as righteous, it is also for them. This is truth for them. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what we should understand when we open up the scriptures, this truth is for you. This truth is for me. Isn't it easy to read names of other people, names of other situations and settings, and even look at this entire text that we call the Bible as something that was for other people back then, but God is different now. But what, what Paul is instructing his people is saying that that text, that story that happened generations previous, that, that doctrine, that truth has an effect and is for you today. This is why we open up the scriptures when we come together and we say, thus saith the Lord, not just back then, but even right here and right now for us as a people. And so faith for Abraham and faith for us is the means by which God is gracious to us, God extends righteousness to us, and now we know that it is specifically through the grace and mercy of Jesus. And so we believe in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. But as, as one of my professors used to say, is however you are won or however you are saved is how you are kept. However you are saved is how you are sustained. And so what Paul begins to do here in chapter 4 on into 5 is shift away from just our story about how we were saved or how, rather, righteousness was credited, credited to us at the moment of conversion. But now how do we live in light of that? How do we live righteous lives by faith? How do we just be a people that doesn't just believe that God saved me, but that God sustains me? Are you with me? And that I don't just have a story that, that I was lost and now I'm found, but, but because of that truth, because of that gospel, it changes the way that I look at everything. It changes uh, the way that I believe and, and what I actually do with my life. And so the question for us today then, what is it that we actually believe that does sustain us? 
And I think Paul highlights three things. Three things that we're going to look at. First, it's really clear. We believe in God. Specifically, God the Father is what Paul says there in verse 24. But he also gives us two specific things that the Father does, or accomplished, if you will, that we also believe. We believe that the Father raised the Son to life, and we believe that the Father delivered the Son to death. So we believe in God the Father, and we believe the Father raised the Son to life because we believe that the Father delivered the Son to death. Now, as we set out, those might seem like really great ideas, doctrinal truths, theological dispositions, or things that we can extrapolate from the scriptures. But the question we have to ask whenever we come to something like this is what difference does it make? Okay, we believe in God the Father, we believe that God raised the Son to life, we believe that God raised, or rather delivered the Son over to death, but what difference does that make? And that's what I hope by God's uh, power, by his kindness, by his grace, we'll discover today and be able to live in a manner worthy of that calling a little bit better. I pray that for myself and for you also. So let's do that now. Let's ask for God's help, because we can't do this by ourselves. We can't just read this text and then, and then obey this text in our own power. We need God's help. Amen? So let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we are coming to your word, uh, because where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. You anticipated and, and know the human heart inside and out. You have created us, and you are watchful over us. You are the one who holds all things together by the word of your power, and so we ask that you would hold us together. We ask that you would hold us together in a contentious and tedious season of life, and pray, Father, that if we find ourselves incredibly weary today, would you hold us together by your word and keep us from despair? If we are thrilled with the direction and trajectory of our life, would your word hold us together and keep us from pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency? We thank you that whenever we come to your word, if we are afflicted, it comforts us, and if we are comfortable, it afflicts us. And so we thank you that as, as that's true of your character and your word, we, we trust that you will bring about your purposes as we come to your word. And so help me, Father, help me to be clear, help me to be responsible with your word so that we might become a people who are obedient to your word. I pray that for myself, I pray that uh, for my friends, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Everybody agrees and said, amen. So. Because we can concede that verses 22 and 23 and even a little bit of 24 are a bit of a summary, I want to take most of our time to look at the latter half of verse 24 and the fullness of verse 25 to think about this particularly short statement I, I believe has like this galaxy of meaning in it. So there's a ton for us to consider there. And so for the sake of time and for clarity, we'll focus on the latter half of 24, verse 24, and the uh, fullness of 25. So look again at the, the, the second part of verse 24. It says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who uh, raised, oh, now my pages are out of order, that's funny, <laughs> who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, uh, Jesus our Lord, rather, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, it refers to righteousness. That word it there in verse 24 refers back to righteousness in verse 22. So what Paul is essentially saying is that righteousness will be counted to us. Well, the, the natural question is, who is us? He says, well, he, us is us who believe. Us who believe. So here's what uh, is of eternal significance for us. What must we believe in order to be 
counted or to be credited with this righteousness of Christ? That should be the question. If us who believe are those who are given righteousness, then we should ask, what is it actually that we need to believe? What's the substance or the object, if you will, of saving faith? And what difference does it make? Are you tracking with me in this? Faith makes us righteous, but not just any faith. Not just any kind of faith. Now, this may seem like an incredibly like, archaic series of questions to ask. In our current cultural moment, we value that people have faith and believe in something, right? Some, some sort of higher power. We decry the practice of dissecting what people believe and trust. It's not very kind to say, should you believe in that? It's just sort of nice to take your hands off and say, I'm glad you believe anything and have faith in anything. So we esteem ourselves to be an open society when it comes to religious uh, things and have a very high view of religious liberty and freedom of, ex of expression. And I think this was particularly true up into the past couple of years. Think about it. Historically, the idea of truth has been a very religious idea. We've all sort of conceded that the word truth is something that we don't talk about in very progressive or secular settings. This is sort of a religious and conservative idea, if you will. More specifically, knowing the truth and defending the truth has been a really Christian idea, that we even have institutions that defend truth. And we have this whole practice called apologetics about defending the truth of the scriptures and about who God is and trying to prove logically the existence of God. And after all, Jesus says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we have good precedent and good reason biblically to be about such things. However, in the past couple of years, through the Trump presidency and a global health crisis, progressive and secular people have all of a sudden started to fight for the truth. This is fascinating. In fact, the New York Times, and if you'll allow me to be so bold, a kind of progressive news outlet, right? In 2017 began what they dubbed the Truth is Worth It campaign. This is just a couple of years ago. The Truth is Worth It campaign. The Times wanted to fight what they observed was rampant disinformation and wanted to, of course, boost subscriptions. And so we constantly were seeing this language in the Times of fighting for, defending, being speakers, reporters, and arbiters of truth. In other words, what the Times, what the New York Times was actually saying was, it matters not just that you think or feel or believe something, but the object of your thoughts and beliefs must be true. And we couldn't agree more. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. This, this, is, this is absolutely helpful. See, obviously the Times, nor more, more secular people, think that things like religion should be treated with the same sort of uh, idea, or the same sort of practice as things like vaccines and elections, but the Bible does. The Bible believes that all truth is God's truth. Or as St. Augustine wrote, Every good and true Christian understands that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. So, a relevant aside, or a hope will be helpful. Christians ought to care about what the truth is, not what our perspective is. Not, not what our sort of cultural disposition has come up with. We should be the most curious people on the planet, because whatever truth we discover points us to our God. Therefore, we shouldn't be trying to win arguments with people who we disagree with. We should be trying to seek the truth together. We should care more about the truth than winning an argument. Am I preaching to you yet? So for the Christian, we, we vote yes to desiring and, and seeking out the truth. Not just from God's word, but surely from God's word. And in all things we desire 
to know the truth. In fact, Christians should be people that are always willing to change their minds if the truth is clarified, proven, and exacting in a conversation or in, in whatever it might be. Because what, is, what does God's word say? The truth sets you free. Not your moral perspective, not your particular religious disposition within and of your heart, but actually the truth does. And so we desire the truth. So what am I getting? Well, God, give me grace. I, I fear many of us are learning to consider earthly ideas through the lens of truth, but we are sort of relegated or believe or are comfortable with spiritual ideas only being considered through the lens of feelings. We are comfortable with seeking the truth in, in, in the headlines and want to make sure that we fact check everything, but don't fact check my spiritual life. Don't fact check my heart. Church, I, I, I want to be as clear as I possibly can. That disposition is not biblical, it's demonic. It's demonic to not question the, the things that are going on in the spiritual realm or things that are going on in my heart is exactly what the evil one would have us do. What's all this have to do with Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 25? Well, Paul writes that righteousness is counted not simply to those who believe, in other words, believe in something. What does the text say? To us who believe in him. Salvation in the spiritual life is not about just having faith or belief in something. Absolutely not. Righteousness is given by grace through faith in those who believe in in God, because faith is only as strong as that which you place your faith in, and God is worthy of your belief, of, of centering your entire life, of building your entire life upon him. Nothing else is. So we believe in God, but not just a God or the divine or some higher power, or even some sort of nominal God of American Christianity. What does the text say? We believe specifically in the God who raised the Son to life and delivered the Son to death. See, Paul seems to be explaining that the nature of God as Trinitarian and the gospel in verses 24 and 25 as a Trinitarian work. What do I mean? One person, the Father, does a work in and through another person of the Godhead, Jesus, our Lord, the Son. You see, the death and resurrection of Christ is not a work of isolation. Rather, it is a Trinitarian work animated by the Father. This is who, this is what we believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe the Father raised and delivered the Son. These set apart the God of the Bible and make unique and effective our faith. This is what is true. This is who we believe. So, so what, what do we do with this? What difference does this make? Well, I think in your life, we should, and, and in mine, we should always be asking each other the question, are you really believing in God or are you believing in something else? Are you believing in the God of the Bible, who is the Father who delivered the Son and who raised the Son? Or are you believing in something else? Or are you grounded in something else? See, followers of Jesus are constantly gracious in their interrogation of their fellow brothers and sisters to make sure that they're believing in Him and not in something else. Are you with me? This is actually incredibly loving to make sure that we are seeking the truth together. Now, two times in our passage, Paul explains that God the Father does what? Raised the Son. The first is in verse 24. Look at it who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. This is the fact of the resurrection. So, so he actually raised Jesus from the dead, is what Paul says first. Second, in verse 25, who raised him for our justification. That is the purpose, if you will, of resurrection. Why he did it. So the fact and purpose then help us to see that to be saved, we must believe that in the God who raised Jesus from the 
dead. So we believe the Father raised the Son to life, but why? Why is this belief necessary for saving faith? Or why, rather, do we have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus to be righteous? Or if I may phrase it one more time, because that's what preachers like to do, what did the resurrection accomplish that was necessary for our salvation? What difference does it make? We'll learn in Romans 6 that the wages or payment of sin is death. And we've already seen in chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, here's the summary. We're all dead. We are all dead spiritually. We will all be dead physically. So when the Bible speaks about death, it holds a lot of things in tension. It holds a lot of things together as its definition, if you will, of death. And we need to hold all of those things together. Why? Because whatever death destroys, resurrection restores. Whatever death destroys, resurrection restores. So if we want to understand the nature and purpose of resurrection, we need to understand the nature and, and impact, if you will, of death in the human race. See, so resurrection is necessary because resurrection reverses the curse of death. Here's what I mean. What things are held in tension in the Bible's understanding, or rather the Bible's teaching on death? First, death is both spiritual and physical. Death is both spiritual and physical. We see this in the Garden of Eden, the very beginning. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were instruct, instructed by God, you can eat of anything you want except this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what, what does God say? If you eat of that tree, if you eat of that fruit, on that day you will surely die. So God created Adam and Eve for eternity and for relationship and for life, but they eat of the fruit. And if we read the story, we realize they actually don't die immediately, at least not physically. See, they do immediately experience shame. They hide from God. They do immediately, in, in chapter 3, get severe consequence. And more than anything else, we see death enter the human story because distance is created between them and God. Intimacy is fractured. And that's how the Bible communicates what real death is. It's not just no longer breathing. It's being separated from God. And Adam and Eve experienced that death immediately. See, Adam died physically. He eventually would... And Adam also died spiritually. So what hope is there for us who experience the same death that Adam died? Well, that God the Father, Paul says, raised the, from the dead Jesus our Lord. The, the fact of resurrection is our hope and that Jesus is our Lord because Jesus was raised physically and Jesus was raised spiritually. And in other words, Jesus, the Son, that God and human being was not breathing, and then he started breathing again. He overcame physical death. Not only so, but Jesus, who was separated from the Father on the cross, is reunited in the Father's presence at resurrection. And so he, he establishes a new spiritual life where there was spiritual death. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. He's referring to Adam and then referring to Christ. See, what death destroys, resurrection restores. So death is both spiritual and physical, and resurrection is both spiritual and physical. Not only so, three other tensions that are held together. Death is immediate, progressive, and eternal. Death is immediate, progressive, and eternal. A few things. The moment we sin, we are dead spiritually. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us. But, but death is also progressive. Have you noticed this? My hair is legit growing grayer every single day. It's a slow burn, isn't it? It's a slow burn. Maybe if you haven't seen me through COVID, you're like, no, it was quick, dude. Like I saw you once and then now you have no hope. 
right? But, but death is this progressive thing that no matter what you do, no matter what you subscribe to, no matter what widget or thing that you follow or what kind of food you eat, you are increasingly more and more, you and I are wasting away. Our bodies are wasting away. Not only that, not only is it immediate spiritually and progressive physically, but it's also eternal. See, if we die in our sin, the Bible teaches us that physical death ultimately will give way to a spiritual eternal death in separation from God forever. So what's our hope? What's our hope in an immediate, progressive, and eternal nature of death? You guessed it. It's Jesus. Jesus, the Son, was was what? Raised for our justification. Raised to make us righteous. That's the purpose of our resurrection. So because Jesus' resurrection was immediate, and it was progressive, and it was eternal in its power. See, Jesus' breath returns to him, and his power and authority were secured instantly on that Sunday morning when he rose from the dead. Not only so, but we're taught to pray what? That this resurrection kingdom would would come on this earth as it is in heaven more and more. That the power of the resurrection would more lay hold of our families, would more lay hold of our hearts, would more lay hold of the city of Chicago and in our neighborhoods, right? That more and more we would see the power of the resurrection take hold. So resurrection in itself is also progressive, but it's also eternal. One day we're told, that the resurrection power of heaven will lay hold to a completely new reality where heaven and earth become one. Sin, darkness, Satan, and death will all be fully defeated and will be no more. All we will know is resurrection. See, what death destroys, resurrection restores. See, we believe in God the Father. We believe that the Father raised the Son to life and all the fullness of what that means for us. And this resurrection power was even possible because of what Paul also says in our, in our passage today that we believe that the Father delivered the Son to death. Look again at verse 25. He was delivered up. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Now there's a ton in this very short phrase. And when we read the Bible, what the Bible teaches about the plan of the death of Christ, we're, we're given these very two, what immediately, or rather at first blush, seem to be competing ideas. They seem contradictory. We see two things yet that the scriptures hold in tension. That the son died willingly, but the father willed that the son would die. That the son died willingly, but the father willed that the son would die. In other words, Jesus was not put to death against his will, but that's only because he laid down his will. Are you with me in this? This is actually mind-blowing, if we really consider and think about this. That Jesus was not put to death against his will, but the only reason it was not against his will is because he laid down his will. Now, why is this life-altering? Because I think it's right at the tension of a lot of things that we talk about as a church family. Let me explain it in what, again, I hope is a relevant excursus, a relevant aside. Three of the most frequent and challenging conversations, of which I've had different bits of this as we've visited different groups that elders have in the past uh, month and will continue to do so on into June. Three of the most frequent and challenging conversations that we have as a church family have to do with what the Bible teaches about male eldership, gender identity, and racial reconciliation. All of those things, right? Everybody sort of sits up and goes, wow, okay, here we go. See, it's very difficult, isn't it? For us to concede the idea that God built his church to reflect Christ's headship exclusively through qualified men called to be elders. 
Similarly, it's difficult for many of us to concede the idea that God has made humanity, male and female, in order to tell his story of creation. And harder still for some of us to concede that systems of injustice and sins of racism in my heart, particularly white supremacy, are embedded in the hearts of God's people, of people in general, of, of, of cities, of countries, and of systems. In, in other words, what, what is this getting at? Each of these are a challenge of the will. With love, few of us engage these conversations because we read the Bible and began to think differently. Usually, it's because we have a different view of the will, a different view of volition or of autonomy, of personal agency. We might ask, how could we believe that the Bible teaches us to do anything but what we desire? Why would I have a desire that would not be fulfilled? This is often where these sorts of tensions and conversations become very challenging. With grace, we have to be a people who go to the scriptures and admit the different feelings and wills and inclinations that we have to be sure. But I'd like to suggest to you that one of the primary messages of the Bible is to communicate to human beings to lay down their will. To lay down your will. This is central to the Christian story. Let me summarize it this way. When human beings do not lay down their will, death happens. That's what happened in the garden. That's what continues to happen even in the church today. We saw this through COVID, didn't we? Right? Real talk. When Christians are unwilling to lay down their rights, death happens. You can't tell me to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't care what's going on with my neighbor, right? It's a very cold and calloused worldview that God save us from that. And it's not out there. Please hear me. It's in here. I don't want to keep doing this. I'm fine. I got the vaccine. I, this is what's in my heart. I don't want to lay down my will. I want to do what I please. Are you tracking with me that this is not just a story of my salvation? This is an everyday cruciform life where I'm learning personally, and we're learning together. What does it mean to pick up our cross and follow Jesus? I don't want to lay down my will, but when human beings don't lay down their will, death happens. And hear this, when the greatest human being who ever lived laid down his will, life happens. That's the story of our faith. Our refusal to concede our will and Jesus' willingness to lay down his will. All this to say, Paul expresses this powerful truth. Relevant excursus done. We'll go back to the text. All of this to say, the, son's, the son willingly obeyed the father's will. And Galatians 1, I think, summarizes, perhaps with the most clarity, this sort of duality of the gospel as it relates to the will. Galatians 1, 3, and 4 says, Grace to you and peace from our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, what? According to the will of God, our God and Father. So the Son gave himself for our sins, but it was according to the will of our Father. But why would the Father will for his Son to die? And what did the death of Christ actually accomplish that was necessary for salvation? In other words, what difference does it make? Well, first, let's look. The father willed the son to die. The prophetic writer in Isaiah in chapter 53, which one historian says is the most important chapter in the Old Testament for the early church, and we'll see why in a second. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So it was the will of the Father, or rather the will of the Lord, to, to crush him. Why? Isaiah says, In order to make his soul an offering for guilt. Jesus' body and soul is an offering which the Father delivers up or delivers over for guilt. But 
the son is innocent. The son is not guilty. So whose guilt then is the son delivered for? Well, that's what Paul is highlighting in our particular passage. The son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is delivered for our justification, for our guilt. Or notice there in verse 25, for our what? Trespasses. In this, we see the sovereignty and providence of God, that God is all-powerful over all things, that God willed this for our good before the foundation of the world. Not only so, the Father doesn't just will that the Son dies, but as we've been saying, that the Son died obeying the will of the Father. Perhaps most famously, Jesus comes face to face with the cost, the price, the weight of our justification and death in Luke chapter 22, when he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Some, some of the most famous words in our story of faith, and yet some of the most difficult words for us to actually embody and live out and follow. Luke tells us that Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. He's heavy with the weight of suffering and the passion, the crucifixion, the sorrow and anguish that is before him. Blood, in fact, soon would drip from his furrow brow, just like sweat. And despite all the anxiety and the pain and the suffering pressing in on him, what does he do that is so deeply human and yet deeply divine? He trusts his father. He trusts him. Jesus, kind of like Abraham, is looking around and just going, this is a bad, this is going to be hard. This is going to be a real challenge. This is going to hurt. This is going to be devastating. This is going to crush me. But, but he looks at his father in the middle of that crushing weight, and he just goes, I don't, I, I don't know. I trust you, though. He, he concedes himself to his father. He submits himself to his father. What difference does this make? Well, when you get that picture of Christ and what he has done, submitting himself for the father for our, for our sake, I think we see that, that God is not just simply all-powerful, but he's also all-loving. Do you have a framework for that? In your faith of God, is he all-powerful and all-loving? Because this is what Paul is teaching us. This is the difference that it makes. When I, have a, when, when I know that, that, that God is all-powerful and he is all-loving, what I am prone to do is trust him. What I am prone to do when it comes to his will or mine is lay mine down. He is all-powerful, and he is all-loving. He's completely in control, and he is incredibly gracious. He is eternally kind, and he is over all things. You see, our story is not about the violence of one member of the Trinity being exacted upon a member, another member. Rather, our story is about a suffering servant who willingly trusts his Father for the sake of you and me. We believe in God the Father. We believe the Father raised the Son to life. We believe that this resurrection power was, was possible because we believe the Father delivered the Son to death. All of this, the Father and Son has done, Paul says, for us. To be sure, for his glory, for the glory of the Father, but he has done it with this purposefulness for us. The Father has done all of this for us because he's all powerful. The son has done all of this for us because he is all loving so that we might believe in him. And this makes all of the difference in the world. Physically, spiritually, immediately, and progressively and eternally when we get a view of God 
who is all-powerful and all-loving, we are willing to look death in the face in all of the spiritual and physical ways and immediate ways and progressive ways and eternal ways that it manifests, and we trust him. We lay down our will for the one who laid down his will for the Father. And so, Heavenly Father, help us in this. Left to ourselves, we cling so tightly to any amount of agency and personal autonomy that we possibly can. And yet when we look at the story of our Lord, we find one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, Isaiah goes on to say it's by his wounds that we are healed. And so, Father, may that not just be the story of how we were saved, but may that be the story of how we are sustained Today and forever we ask in Jesus' name, amen.